brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts, offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Yes, it's me. It's Professor Buzzkill here, busting myths, taking names. And, and Buzzkillers, it's a treat for you today because we're addressing one of the most serious problems in, in, in human history, but we're addressing it like we always like to address serious topics from a slightly different angle and something that illuminates the question that you, in, in a way perhaps that you haven't heard before. And fortunately for you, we have Dr. Brandon Gaucher on the line on the internets. He's here to talk to us about his great new book called Before Evil, Young Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Mao, and Kim. Dr. Gauthier, thank you so much for coming on the show. Professor Buzzkill, nice to be here with you this morning. Great pleasure to be on this wonderful show. Uh, thank you so much. This book is so gripping, and I, th I, th I thank you on behalf of myself, obviously, but also on behalf of our, our readers, because you've written it very much to engage the public. And on the one hand, you know, people are fascinated by why does young Adolf eventually become Hitler? Why does young Yosef become the evil Stalin? Why, you know, what happens to these things and, and uh, to these people that make them that way? And, uh, but what was so, what captured me so immediately in your book is you say, what you're trying to do here, you say, is to undermine the cult of personality of these despots by humanizing their monstrosity, by trying to understand why humans can do these sorts of things or be, get to a certain point where they do sorts of things, th those horrible things. And because they're often, because at their, at their time, of course, they were turned into superhumans by their worshipers, it's, it's, very, it's a very, very difficult uh, line to walk. And yet, you're able to show that there, you know, that there is this serious problem. We turn them into these these massive superhuman personalities that they must be different than other humans. That why that's why we can understand Hitler because he's an aberration. But you're talking about the, actually how they live their young lives. 
Sorry, there's a long, there's a question in there somewhere, and I didn't ask it because I couldn't figure out how to how to phrase it as a question. But but you know what I'm saying? It is perhaps, especially now when we see so many political personalities acting so in such a monstrous fashion, it's a question we constantly need to wrestle with. Well, the, the question I would ask the buzz killers out there as we begin this discussion is one that keeps me up at night. Yeah, sometimes quite literally, right? Should we humanize the inhumane? Right. Do the worst people who have ever lived, some of the very worst people who have ever lived, who have caused human suffering on an unimaginable scale, loss and grieving and misery from real men and women who actually lived, who endured the, the trauma they caused, do those people deserve to be humanized? Should they be humanized? And if so, why? Can we humanize such individuals? without disrespecting the immense suffering of the harm that they caused to so many innocent victims. But then the larger question that arises, right? Do we humanize Adolf Hitler or Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong and so on? Uh, and then the question is, well, how do we think about these individuals? And a problematic narrative that I see is that uh, too often by only demonizing them, you know, as much as they deserve appropriately to be demonized, right? But if we only demonize them and we lose that human element, we almost risk playing into the cult of personality that they themselves built up. Adolf Hitler did not want to be seen as a human being. He wanted to be seen as larger than life. Uh, if we look at something like Joseph Stalin, I mean, of course, the so-called man of steel himself, yeah. This is not an individual who wanted anyone around him to know about his, inter his really uh, his intimate life or the tears that he shed over the loss of his two wives in his life. By humanizing the most monstrous, there are many important reasons why I think we should do that in history. But one of them is almost certainly is that we reject their cult of personality yep. in a way that would be the antithesis of how they viewed themselves and wanted to be viewed by a wider public. Well, Professor, you, you address so many evil people, again, Lenin, Hitler, Stalin, Mussolini, Mao, Kim, but you know, there's the famous Hitler channel, the History Channel does so much stuff on Hitler. We've done a lot of stuff on Hitler. Hitler is, is, is almost done to death. And I'm afraid, as awful as he was, obviously, I'm afraid that Stalin and Mao, for instance, get overlooked. So perhaps today, we could use the show to illuminate young Stalin and young Mao and uh, as a sort of case studies to help us understand your work. So let's start with, well, let's start, I suppose, chronologically. Stalin was presumably born before Mao. If you look at the story of Stalin himself, the question to the buzzkillers, the second question, right? And the first is, should we humanize the inhumane? And the other question I'd like to have listeners think about, right, is what is the most, I think, classic rationality of a rationale for explaining how someone like Stalin and Mao come to be. Yeah. Right. And, and this is something you've touched on in the past, right? Uh, if, if we ask listeners that question, I think the immediate thought is those who cause grave suffering on a mass scale surely were the product of trauma themselves growing up. Right. And if we look at Joseph Stalin, that would be a classic take. Now, there's two problematic narratives I want to hit on here, Professor Buzzkill. Uh, the first, right, is this notion that trauma alone creates these mass monsters, you know, that, that there's this direct line that can be taken from Stalin's troubled childhood to the great purges of 1937 and 1938, uh, you know, something that I think is, uh, you know, is a very problematic narrative. And we'll touch on that here in a second. The, the second problematic narrative, I think, is one in which we say their childhoods don't matter at all. Yeah, you know, that um, as the great Stephen Cochran, right, who is a, you know, I like to say that 
Before Evil is in so many ways, the writing style and the approach of which I'm quite proud. It's something more akin to Blind Lemon Jefferson playing a one string guitar with a broken bottle for slide. Yeah. It's gonna pop, it's gonna be engaging. Stephen Kotkin is playing Beethoven, if you will, right? right? But Stephen Kotkin in his books on Stalin, right? Has noted uh, appropriately, right? That many people had far worse childhoods than Joseph Stalin sure. and never went on to become mass murderers. We've heard this before, but Stalin's childhood is one of trauma, uh, which I do think we should acknowledge, but it is not something that explains his, his letter, his heinous actions. But Stalin's childhood is, I think, a step towards understanding all of these dictators and the importance of humanizing their youths is one that also shows a degree of opportunity and privilege and if you will, with his mom, even good parenting, even if his mom was abusive towards him at times. This is not something we think of in terms of these dictators. No. We oftentimes, we go down this rabbit hole of trauma, which is important. I reject the notion that we can't engage the fact that Stalin's father beat him severely, right. that we should completely dismiss it only because other people were beaten and never became megalomaniacal mass murderers, right? right. I, I, I think that's problematic too. But, but let's get further into Stalin, okay? You have a, a little boy, right? And, and another parallel you'll see amongst these dictators' lives that I focus on in the book, you know, Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Kim Il-sung, Mussolini and Vladimir Lenin. And we should definitely get to Lenin yeah. in a little bit in terms of this notion of privilege and opportunity. The story of Stalin's life, he's born to a family that have his mom and dad, KK and Beso, have lost a couple kids before him. This is a common trend that you see in these dictators with their parents. And he grows up in a, in a home that initially the marriage between his parents is happy. But as his dad devolves and descends into substance abuse with alcohol and becomes abusive, his dad is really horrible to uh, you know, Joseph Jukashvili growing up. And, and as that is happening, KK, his mom, writes these memoirs that are found in a Georgian archive by Simon Sebag Montefiore uh, for his book, Young Stalin. And, you know, memoir, quote unquote. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it describes it describes though Stalin's experiences growing up and notes things about how abusive his father was. Um, and then even to paraphrase an excerpt when Joseph Stalin, who by the way went by Soso as a kid, that's what his mom called him. That's what I call him in the chapters on his youth in the book. Soso. When he heard his dad coming, he, he would run to her and tell her to hide. And 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 he even fought back with his dad at one point. There is, you know, his daughter Svetlana will later say, you know, that he threw a knife at his dad at one point as to try and, and the dad tried to chase him and strangle him. So all right, that trauma is important. That, that, that's a major part of the story. We should tell that story, but we can't draw a line from the fact that he had a horrible, abusive father to these to mass murder. I, I say that yet though, with this really an annoying inclination of the historian, Professor Buskill qualified. Yeah. It's Stalin who will say, right? During the doctor's purges in the last years of his life, beat and beat again, put them in chains, grind them into dust. This was a person who'd been beaten at a young age and knew that there was one thing that almost no one can withstand, which is being beaten over and over and over. Yeah. Yeah. But trauma is only part of the story. What is the other part of the story? That KK, his mother loved him immensely and did every single thing she could to get this kid in a patriarchal society away from his abusive alcoholic father. And more than that, got him into good schools, found him essentially a, a mentor. And in doing that, she had this dream that he was going to go on to something great, right? That he was going to be a priest or maybe even a bishop. And here is the story that we need to pay attention to, Professor Buskill. <laughs> it was not illiterate cobblers who seize power right. in, in, in Petrograd in October 1917. Yeah. It was zealous intellectuals and fanatics right. and had Stalin 
just grown up with his dad, uh, he would have become uh, an, a cobbler. Um, and that's what his dad wanted him to be. It was his mom who fought so hard, fought so hard to get him a really good education. And from that education, and this is one major argument of the book, came the notion of the world of ideas that Stalin read Dostoevsky and Kaz Beggy's uh, Patricide uh, and so many other books that would be really important and inflaming his mind about what could be even before he gets to Marx and Chernyshevsky. Yeah. So we maybe should begin to view dictators not only through the lens of trauma that informed the early lives, but the opportunities that shape the possibility of their future. So you see this intellectual period, this, this learning, his schooling, his sort of getting out of the abusive situation as perhaps more central than the abusive situation itself? Or, I mean, I know the answer to this because I've read the book, but can you explain to people, you know how people want to know, they want to know an answer. Is it the abuse plus being introduced to radical ideas or is it just radical ideas? Could, you know, could uh, Rand Paul, because he's a radical libertarian, go off in this direction, even though he may not have been abused as a child? You know, people always want an answer. Uh, they, want a, they want a combination. They want a recipe. This, this abuse plus th these radical ideas plus revolutionary times leads to X dictatorship behavior all the time. Now, as historians, as you're absolutely right, we qualify this to the nth degree because it's not true. But is there any is there any <laughs> is there any sense in which a mixture can be identified? Like if we look at, uh, at Hegel's you know, cl classic anecdote from the philosophy of history and the bus killers, you're going to hate this, but you should love it. All right, you're yes. going to hate this, yes. but you should love it. Okay, you know, I, I want you to stand up at your next gathering, and I want you to say that we all know that you know George Vollheim, Frederick Hegel, as he once said, that the only thing that we learn from history is that we do not learn from history. And right. he wasn't being a smart aleck, friends. He wasn't just being, he wasn't saying that we repeat the same mistakes over and over. That's not what he meant. What he meant was history is too wildly complex. There's an endless array of evolving numbers right. and a massive algorithm that's constantly shifting. We cannot say Joseph Stalin had a good education, was abused by his father. We can take these parallels and definitively understand who the next despotic character will be. Right. What we can do, though, is begin a discussion uh, if we humanize these individuals and we're looking for parallels in their lives, what do we learn then? If the reality of where despots come from is going to transcend any really simplistic equation, you know, that's always going to work out that way, then what do we learn? Here's what we learn, Professor Buzzkill, and this may not make your listeners happy either, as the question then is, why are we like these men in certain ways? How is this yes. not a story just about Joseph Stalin or Mao Zedong or Vladimir Lenin? This is a story about us it's a story about the humanity of inhumanity right and that story in my mind is best framed to answer your question now uh, in the most direct way i can some of the most horrific mass murderers of human history who rise to the heights of power begin not only with abuse which is not always present vladimir lenin has a lovely childhood but often begins with the world of ideas and the empowering meaning of books novels and ideas yeah. and this determination, most simplistically put, to make the world a better place. And if we yes. look at the history of Joseph Stalin and Mao Zedong and Vladimir Lenin and Mussolini, and we can talk about Mussolini and Victor Hugo here in a little bit, right? But the, the core point is they 
receive the benefits of education in a way that is distinct. They receive good educations. We can even talk about Hitler, you know, he drops out of high school, right? But there are advantages he has in the world of books and education through his mom. And this world of education and ideas empowers them to view themselves as capable of doing something to move the needle of the world. Before evil makes two arguments. One, that education and privilege are absolutely indispensable to who they would later become. That, that, that is a crucial piece of the puzzle, if you will. And the second is that each one of these young people from a very early age, even before their lives, intersect uh, with Marxism right, or fascism, these ideologies that uh, they have not become involved with yet. They begin to view that they themselves have something larger to do, that there is a moment of heroism awaiting them, self-fulfilling prophecies to be the world of education and ideas, leading to this notion that they themselves could change the world, most simplistically put. So when we look at this as a story about us, it's a story about the ways that human beings are susceptible to dogmatism and ideological radicalism, not with the conviction that what they're going to do is evil or horrible. And this is the part that I hope keeps the buzz killers up at night, but that, that what they will do is inherently just and right. And the question is, what is the line between horrible people doing awful things, knowing they're awful, and horrible people doing awful things, believing that they are just? When can we ourselves become the villain yeah. without potentially realizing it? So do, do, we, do we have a sense where Stalin, who's receiving this good education, but which He's not necessarily being indoctrinated to become a dictator when he's 12, 13, 14, 15. There is a point at which he crosses the line. Is there, there uh, where, what do we know roughly at what stage he starts to believe as a young man that it's he who can put these ideas into action and make the world a better place along his version of those ideas. Now, I think we have to return to the seminary. We have to return okay. to the moment, okay. right, where he's getting this high-level education. By the way, let's, let's give a brief a brief uh, explanation of, most people won't know that he went to a seminary. Yeah, so Stalin, difficult relation, has a terrible father, mother works extremely hard, gets him into um, a, a school by age nine or so, nine, 10, and he ends up getting accepted to the Tiflis Seminary, right? So he's getting into one of the most advanced educational institutions in Georgia at that time. Yeah. So when he you know, is 15 years old, he goes off to what most simplistically put, will ultimately be the equivalent of a college education, four to five years of higher learning. This is unheard of for Stalin, by the way. And what right. I mean, it's unheard of for someone of his background. His mom in a patriarchal country overrules his dad that he's not going to be a cobbler. He's going to go to school. He gets into the seminary and he's a, and he's a strong student. Growing up, by the way, before we get into the seminary, I mean, this was the type of kid who read books on the playground. This is the type wow. of kid at lunch who sat with a book himself. And so, okay, he goes off to the seminary. And, and what unfolds for a young so-so at the seminary is he, he, he's a good student. He begins to read widely banned books, you know, a lot of Dostoevsky. And as he begins to read those books, this is what ultimately leads him to Marx and Chernyshevsky and other more like blatantly Marxist 
Marx's works, if you will. And in doing so, Stalin at the seminary begins to question everything around him. But what he also, I think, is deeply influenced by is the repressive nature of the seminary itself. If the capital of Georgia at that time was a wildly diverse, alive place with so many opportunities, the seminary was this really closed, yeah. repressive institution where the priest ruled with an iron hand. Stalin will say, and I, I quote him in, in, in the book, right? And this is an interview from the early 1930s. He'll say about his mom and dad, by the way, my mom and dad weren't, weren't bad people. And this is something that historians often say, how bad could his childhood have been? He'll even say about his parents, no, they weren't particularly bad people. My dad wasn't a particularly bad person, so to speak, I'm paraphrasing. Although we could speak to the meaning of that more in my mind, but it was at the, uh, the seminary, right? Where at the process, I actually experienced something repressive. Uh, the actual quote from that really quickly is as follows. He says, quote, in protest against the outrageous regime and the Jesuit methods prevalent at the seminary, I was ready to become and actually did become a revolutionary a believer in Marxism as a really revolutionary teaching. What we see in that moment is the intersection, not only of a budding self-belief that intertwines with this Marx, the notion of Marxism, and maybe the paradoxical notion of dialectical materialism, which isn't about any one man leading it, right? But Stalin is reading about a cause to which he could dedicate his life. And at the same time, he is in an institution that's quite repressive. And he's reading books like Life of Jesus by Ernest Renan, which challenges Jesus' divinity, uh, Hugo's uh, 1793 about the French Revolution, Dostoevsky's The Devils, What is to be Done by Chernyshevsky. Um, and as he's reading these books along Engels uh, and Plekhanov, he starts to think about this larger world. So there is no simple one moment, right, where Stalin begins to believe he is going to do something better. He is going to be this great hero, but there is this budding belief that there's this larger cause that could make the world a better place. Now, here's the uncomfortable part. That is genuine. Yeah. It's not simply about a cynical power grab. To be a revolutionary, a Marxist revolutionary at the end of the 19th century, you're going to be in, the, in prison or executed you know, probably within a year or two. And Stalin is repeatedly arrested. So education, opportunities, privileges, the willingness to believe that they could contribute to something larger and that belief grows and grows and grows. With all these little moments, right? Like the seminary, which is not a little moment, but it, it deeply informed Stalin's worldview. Although, you know, as we qualify this further, historians like Stephen Kirkin will say, it wasn't that bad. You know, it was a very strict institution. Yeah. We shouldn't say that Stalin learned to be a tyrant from the priest, uh, but I would say it uh, impacted him, that he, it was a strong takeaway. Yeah. But then he, he, he leaves the seminary and goes off and eventually becomes a young political activist. Do, do you notice sort of, is in Stalin's writings and Stalin's behavior, do you notice any sort of like relating back to his experiences there that then explain him in a, a hell? Well, I should don't explain it because we can't, we, that help explain some of the things in his 20s? Absolutely. I, I think that the path from reading Marx and Chernyshevsky at the seminary, right, is what's going to lead him to eventually reading what is to be done by Lenin. And that really inflames his imagination. Yeah. Before we get to that, though, let's just note the following. Again, bringing it back to education. Beso, his father wanted him to be a cobbler. And the mom fought, you know, so hard against that. And it's when... Stalin is uh, about to be expelled from the seminary. By the way, paradoxically, his grades went up in his final year. Oh. Uh, there were a time in the seminary, he um, grew his hair long eventually, started challenging the priest, 
uh, declaring that he was an atheist, you know, books as bombs, right? These ideas go off on his mind, go off in his mind. So before we get to him leaving the seminary, right, what we see is him beginning to get in trouble. And uh, KK will recall in her memoirs from the 30s, which are only like 30 pages, it's really short, but we'll say, you know, I begin to hear whisperings that uh, so so was getting in trouble and that he was going down a bad path. And she'll rush to the capital of Georgia, uh, today's Tbilisi, Tbilisi at the time, to try to bring him back, right? And and she goes there, and, and who should she run into in the streets? She runs into Besa. Right. He's drunk. Yeah, the father. He's, yeah, clutching yeah. His fi- he's clutching his fist. And he says, you ruined him. Yeah. You ruined him. He would have been a great foreman by now. He'd been a great cobbler. You had to insist that he would go to school. God, that moment must have burned. Yeah. So his mom ultimately... He goes to him and says, Sonia, what are you doing? You're going to go to prison. Let, let someone else who has another son try to overthrow Nicholas, right. right? Why are you doing this? And Soso looks at his mom and he says, you know, wipes away a tear and says, mom, you know, don't, don't cry. And I'm not going to get in any trouble. Don't worry about it. And KK will say uh, that that was his first lie. Yeah. It certainly wasn't his first lie, <laughs> but, but, but symbolically for his mom, that was the moment where he turned and he went down a different path. So, you know, very quickly within, you know, he, he will end up in the Siberian frozen wasteland as a result of this revolutionary career. But as we look at the story of his life, and I'm really interested in what the book is in a large part about, it's not about the notion of explaining A to Z, how these men come to be, but this notion of humanizing them for this important reason, right, of considering what we have in common with them. How do we reject the cult of personalities through humanizing them? And a big part of the Stalin chapters are about his relationship with his first wife, Kato. It's when Stalin is a 20-something Bolshevik gangster who's already escaped from Siberia once. He meets her in the capital of Georgia, Tiflis, and falls in love. And this story is a profound one. It's the story I started the book with. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, when I first started to write this book, Stalin will love this woman deeply. And he'll tell his daughter this later in life, about how I loved this woman. And he'll be a terrible husband. He'll be totally dedicated to the revolution. He cares about Lenin and the revolution far more than his wife, but he does love her. And they have a child, Yakov. We can talk about Stalin as a father at a later time. Uh, and then um, Kato, uh, she gets sick. Yeah. This is after the heist in uh, Tbilisi, in which they steal the equivalent of some $2 million, but that's a story for another time. Stalin is bank robber, which is kind of a mythical point itself. Right. <laughs> Stalin's first wife, Stalin's first wife dies and he was a bad husband, but she dies in his arms. So and, what's um, the date on this? And, so we, the, we, Buzzkills will know. Yeah. So the date specifically of Kato's death is 1907. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, and, and, and so when she dies in November 22nd, 1907, Stalin is utterly crushed. He had dragged her to Baku uh, and left her alone with his son, like in a hut, you know, going on, carrying on the revolution, you know, carrying on with the revolution like a mistress. And his wife gets sick. He brings her back to Tbilisi to fleece. And uh, ultimately she dies in his arms. And it's after her death that he will say, with her died my last warm feelings for humanity. And uh, he will point to his chest and say, it's so cold here. It's so cold. I think for a lot of historians, they would say we shouldn't overplay that moment, right? We shouldn't look for the trope of, you know, he loses his wife and then therefore he becomes this evil man. Yeah, that's too simplistic. But should we, and this is a third question to the bus killers, should you feel bad 
for 20-something Joseph Stalin in 1907, mourning the loss of his wife? And if so, why? Do we feel empathy for someone who will go on to be a mass murderer? And if so, why? Should we feel empathy for 20-something Joseph Stalin who's lost his wife? What do you think, Professor Buskell? Well, I think we should feel empathy for anyone who loses their wife. Well, but what I often run into is, again, as you, com- as you complain about rightly, is people leaping for one answer. And my answer is always, it's not, it's not, the, not the losing the wife, it's not these other things, even though he says his, his heart is cold and all that sort of thing. We need to be cognizant, and I, I think about this stuff with Putin, for instance, of when they start to act in a large-scale, monstrous manner. You know, it, we, we, we can explain their backgrounds all we want and explain all, all these things happen to them. But as you as you rightly point out, a lot of these things happen to a lot of people and they don't become Stalins or Mao's. But we notice when Stalin becomes Stalin, or at least some people do. We notice when Mao becomes Mao. We notice when Hitler becomes Hitler. And it's, so it's more it's more that their adult actions that need to be stopped when they start rather than going through, you know, current Russian high schools looking for Putin-esque behavior isn't, isn't going to get us anywhere because we're going to end up with thousands of kids. What, what, we, what we need to do is stop them when we see Putin-esque behavior as a, 20, as a 30-year-old politician rising through the ranks with dictatorial tendencies. The, the, the vast majority of those who might share the common traits of someone like Vladimir Putin, who, like these dictators, loved a book called The Shield and the Sword. You right. know, fell in love with the notion of the KGB spy. The same parallels play out, right? But most of those people, right, if you take a thousand Russian kids who reflect that tendency, are going to go on to be completely normal Completely people. Exactly. Um, yeah, but that being said, should we empathize with Joseph Stalin losing his wife in 1907 and being utterly heartbroken about it? Yeah, I think we should, right? And here's why. Because of the story of these dictators is not looking for any certain equation. Remember Hegel, everybody. Yeah. Don't forget Hegel, buzzkillers. That is what you're taking away from this episode. But the only thing we learned in history is we learned nothing. Well, here's something we learned. Here's something that I'm going to go and say that is definitively important. There's no equation for understanding how these monsters, despots come to be, that any one anecdote that can definitively explain. And Professor Buzzkill makes a really good point, right? Is it not more interesting, perhaps, to look at the moment where they begin to shift in terms like of direct monsters' actions? Yeah, that's important. Although I still think that's slippery. I still don't think there's that one moment. So, so then what do we gain from empathizing from Joseph Stalin in 1907? Uh, Here's what I think we gain. We gain a a better understanding that the way of understanding these type dictators is not only about the micro history of their lives, but it is indeed about ourselves. It is about indeed looking inward. And that through a degree of feeling for these individuals, we come away with, I think, a couple of really important points. One, I think a degree of feeling heightens our engagement with the topic itself. Um, This discussion can be had of, well, should we really be talking about Joseph Stalin's loss of his first wife? Should we not be focusing our feeling on the victims of the great purges, right? And that is a valid point. But by a degree of feeling and, and greater engagement, I think it heightens our effort to try to understand these individuals, even if that's slippery. But most importantly, this point about ourselves, the story of how monstrous acts come to be, about how people begin to behave in an evil way, evil being defined as a lack 
of empathy mm-hmm. is about that they themselves stop feeling for others. I don't mean in a sociopathic, incapable of any empathy at all. Right. Stalin, Hitler, so on. They have mo- rare moments of empathy, but they do. It is that to feel for them is the antithesis of their tyranny, not the height of complicity. It is a task that requires we look beyond caricatures of demons and we recognize, and this is a really hard thing to swallow, monsters aren't real human beings are. Mm-hmm. I'm not suggesting that within us lacks necessarily a Joseph or a lurks a Joseph Stalin or an Adolf Hitler. But what I am saying is that the road to monstrous acts, big and small, begins with diminishing empathy for others. If right. we feel for those who least deserve it, we distinguish ourselves. So one, we have a better understanding of their lives, even as we recognize the slippery nature of, you know, totalitizing a total explanation of how they would become what they become. But two, we distinguish ourselves. And I think, I think that is absolutely indispensable through doing it. We don't see caricatures. We don't see myths. We see real people. And in them, we see ourselves. And that is disturbing, but so important. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, Professor, you've, you've talked about Stalin, and, we, and we, we're understanding a lot more about this, and this, and this lack of empathy is, is so central. But you also keep mentioning Lenin, and Lenin's early, not only his own work, but his, his, his later influence on Stalin. So let's, let's sort of tackle the Lenin questions in your book. I really struggle with Lenin. Yeah, well, everybody I, I, what does. we were talking about, like, all right, so what keeps me up at night? And, and Stalin, I've lost, I've lost a lot of sleep over, right? The more you read about it, the more disturbing it comes. Uh, and so what we've said thus far, right? What's the, before evil in my book, we're talking about humanizing the inhumane, but we're talking about the role of education, and we're talking about the power of self-belief. So that those are the core two tenets we've been talking about. Right. Let's talk about Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. And on August 11th, 1918, Lenin, in the height of the Civil War, after the Bolsheviks have seized power in October 1917, the Bolsheviks seized power in Russia uh, at a time in which it was realistic to think uh, that they uh, would all be dead or in exile within yeah. six months. You know, Lenin will push the Bolsheviks into seizing power. And, and, and it's you know, so problematic to overfocus on one leader or one person. But if there's ever an instance, and that's a broad comment, if there's, quote, ever an instance, but where one person has such a profound impact, 
Vladimir Lenin convincing the Bolsheviks to actually seize power in October 1917. He browbeats, he argues, he talks the Bolsheviks into doing it. He makes fun of those who are opposed to it. He says things like, oh, if only revolution wasn't so exceedingly difficult, you know, if only yeah. it wasn't just the perfect moment, right? Then Lenin seizes power. And Lenin gives the following instructions in August 1918, as the Bolsheviks are struggling in the beginning, only controlling Moscow and Petrograd. And they're struggling to control the country in the beginning of this heinous civil war. Lenin will send the following telegram. That, that telegram is as follows. Comrades, the insurrection of five Kulak districts should be piteously suppressed. The interest of the whole revolution require this because the, quote, last decisive battle with the Kulaks is now underway everywhere. An example must be made. One, hang, absolutely hang, in full view of the people, no fewer than 100 known Kulaks, fat cats, bloodsuckers. Two, publish their names. Three, seize all grain from them. Four, designate hostages in accordance with yesterday's telegram. Do it in such a fashion that for hundreds of versed around, the people see, tremble, know, shout, quote, the blood-sucking kulaks are being strangled and will be strangled. Telegraph receipt and implementation, yours, Lenin, P.S., find tougher yeah. people. The, the use of the word pitiless there. Yeah, if, if there was ever a clear-cut piece of hard evidence that Lenin committed crimes against humanity during the Russian Civil War, yeah. that telegraph is it, right? That, 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 that is it. Okay, so then the question is this, who is the person that sends that telegram, right? And, and buzzkillers, we come back to that question, what informed this person, uh, their, their upbringing at an early age, right? And I think that the trope of the traumatic childhood would be the fallback. Well, surely something happened to Vladimir Lenin. You know, he had a bad relationship with his parents. What, what happened there? Now, there is a moment in Lenin's young life that is very important. We'll talk about momentarily. But Vladimir Lenin, as I said earlier in this episode, had... Yeah a lovely childhood, a lovely childhood. Lenin grew up with a mother and father who were deeply dedicated to his education. He had Christmas trees. They dyed Easter eggs. They went sledding and ice skating. His mother was a wonderful mother. Um, she taught the kids German and taught them to pun in French. I mean, uh, they made a faux literary journal, he and his siblings growing up, in which Vladimir Lenin was growing up, right? And Lenin obviously was yeah. not his name at that point. Ulanov uh, was his last name. He had a lovely childhood. And so the story of who Lenin is as a dictator is one of crimes against humanity. But the story of his childhood is one that is quite privileged. A father utterly dedicated to his kids' education and promoting education around Simbursk, where they were from. His dad actually is a noble. Yeah. Lenin comes from a family of nobles. So let's come back to the bloodsuckers and the, and the telegraph, right? The people ultimately that Lenin, he's talking for kulaks, you know, rich peasants is what that means, right? To, to, to be killed. And he's utterly ruthless with nobles. Uh, Lenin will say once he takes power that if it was necessary in, in such a cultured country as England to behead one monarch, which is a reference to the English Civil War in the mid-17th century. But if it was necessary in England to behead one monarch, then in Russia, it will be necessary to kill at yeah. least 100 Romanovs. And, and so, all right, Lenin, uh, as a kid, his dad tells him and his older brother, Sasha Alexander is his formal name, have nothing yeah. to do with politics. Don't, don't, don't get involved with politics. Uh, when Alexander the, um, the second is uh, assassinated by a terrorist group, 
of a far-left terrorist group. The father, who, by the way, is a noble, he is appointed a noble in terms of his work, in terms of promoting education. He has the civilian rank of something akin to a general. So he becomes a noble, is a hereditary rank, that Lenin himself technically is a noble. In 1920, he'll fill out a, a, um, a questionnaire on his background, Professor Buzzkill, and they'll ask his uh, class background, and Lenin will actually wow. write noble. And his very dark humor uh, from the person sending so many nobles to their deaths. Lenin's father tells his kids have nothing to do with politics. He takes them to the funeral memorial service within their you know, provincial city that mourns the assassination of the czar. And the father will say to his kids, you know, what, what rogues, you know, what, what stupid people could have done this? And, and things actually get much worse in terms of Alexander III once he takes over. So what happens in Lenin's life? He has a wonderful childhood. He falls in love with books, spends a lot of time reading Russian novels, Turgenev. And then his older brother, who is like him, a straight A student, goes off to school in St. Petersburg. And as we qualify, Lyndon has a great childhood. There is, there is one traumatic moment that's pretty profound. His brother, Alexander, goes off to St. Petersburg University, becomes a Marxist. Uh, lots yeah. of kids go off to college, Professor Buzzkill, <laughs> and return home as Marxist. Very few, very, right. very few become terrorists. Lenin's older brother, Alexander, falls and begins to join these different reading groups, begins to read particularly Chernyshevsky's What is to be Done, a book that I've mentioned a couple of times. And uh, Lenin's older brother, Alexander, becomes involved in a plot to kill the czar, uh, Alexander III. He is arrested and uh, he is ultimately hanged for that during the course of that process of his older brother being arrested. Lenin receives a letter saying what's happened to his brother, that he's been arrested for this plot. And Lenin essentially says, as a, as a young teenager, a 16-year-old, this is going to end badly for Sasha. Uh, well, what has happened? Lenin's mother, his mother rushes off St. Petersburg. His dad had died just a year before uh, to try to save Sasha, his older brother. His older brother is hanged. And Lenin, from that point forward, someone of great privilege in terms of the educational opportunities he'd had, embraced this conviction of, well, my older brother he, he must have uh, been doing what he thought was right. And Lenin begins to read. And it's not just as the death of his older brother that drives him to become a revolutionary. It's that Lenin falls in love with the same ideas that his brother did. The story of uh, what is to be done, Chernyshevsky, is one that speaks of the revolutionary who will give everything towards this greater end. And the story isn't, isn't one about communist dictatorship. It's not one about crimes against humanity. It's about this utopian future. Yeah. There'll be no yeah. rich and poor anymore, Professor Buzzkill. There, there will be no more suffering. And we'll have women's rights and gender equality and everything is going to get better. The story of Vladimir, Vladimir Lenin's uh, telegraph in which he orders the hanging uh, and the, the mass murder of, uh, that we just read about begins not with this odious dictator who wants to create harm, but a young man deeply informed by the power of ideas empowered to act, not just by his brother's death, but the notion that he himself could bring this world to be. And the more you read about Lenin, the more that begins to be more and more accurate, right? Lenin will, you know, will suggest that why should we wait for the stages of history to play out? Why do we have to live forever under capitalism, so to speak, before finally communism and a socialist revolution arrives? Could we not speed up history? The notion of the Bolsheviks themselves, the vanguard of history, we could speed up this timeline uh, through this hardcore party of revolutionaries. So 
listeners, we think about Lenin, the story of his childhood is, is not one of his father beating him. It, it defies how we think about such an individual who ordered that hanging telegram. Okay. Okay, Professor, we, 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 we started with Stalin because, frankly, um, for lots of reasons, but one of them is the numbers of murdered are so enormous. But you give another good, good example with Lenin's development. Our listeners are going to be sitting here listening to this, wondering what can this tell us, if anything, remembering Hegel, about Putin? Do we, well, we may not know enough, first of all. We may not know enough of his background. We know all, all kinds of stuff. But right now, we're in a, we're in a situation where you know, there's someone who's clearly out of control and clearly doing immoral things. Does this tell us anything useful and actionable about Putin? I mean, it, it begins with that very difficult step right. of humanizing Vladimir Putin. And, and that's it's hard because in this moment, you know, as we mourn and feel such pain over the historical crimes of Hitler, Mao and Stalin, we think about so, so many victims. We think about Putin and with war crimes being committed in Ukraine, as this conversation is being recorded, it is very difficult to humanize this person. I, I think it is much easier to begin to question right. his sanity, uh, to begin to think about this notion of the demonic dictator. And that is very problematic. If we look at Vladimir Putin, we have to begin, in my mind, with the conviction that Vladimir Putin does not believe he is doing yeah. something evil in Ukraine, but that he is doing something profoundly important for the Russian Federation. That in his mind, the road towards stability and prosperity for the Russian Federation is somehow intertwined with what he is doing in this, quote, special military operation in Ukraine. And that's unsettling. How can someone be using or, or under his command, allowing artillery and dumb bombs just to be dropped on civilian areas and cause massive destruction? Uh, Vladimir Putin undoubtedly believes what he is doing is absolutely essential for the security of Russia. And so by humanizing him, we now begin to look at his inhumanity again yeah. as a human problem. If it is a human problem, Professor Buzzkill, it is explicable. And I qualify that with Hegel, right? There's no definitive explanation, but we can begin to better understand. So Vladimir Putin, looking at Ukraine, looking at the for further issue of how Vladimir Putin thinks about democracy, how Vladimir Putin thinks about the security interest of Russia. That's a whole hour long discussion itself. Vladimir Putin is an individual, one at the top of a very big system who even he has some limited power, but he is quite powerful. The story of his life is quite illuminating in terms of trying to understand the notion of how he could possibly think he's right. How does the story of the crimes that he's committing intersect with his own individuality? Let's talk about Putin the person. Vladimir Putin, we could take the common trope of surely had this traumatic childhood. He didn't have a traumatic childhood at all. His father suffered immensely uh, during World War II, fighting outside of St. Petersburg, Leningrad, Leningrad at the time. And his father and mother were very, very lucky to survive that conflict. And so Putin does grow up in the aftermath of the Second World War uh, and the devastation that had occurred in Leningrad and the siege there. Uh -huh. But his parents dote on him. 
grows up uh, in a family that is utterly dedicated, his mom and dad, to ensuring that he is going to have opportunities. Uh, there's numerous examples of this, right? When at one point growing up, he, uh, he, his family wins a car that they could have sold for a lot of money that would improve the family's well-being. Parents give the car to Vladimir Putin uh, as, a, as, as a teenager. Um, when he is growing up, he begins to imagine a world in which his own individuality could be of great consequence. He falls in love with this spy novel later movie that I referenced earlier, yeah. The Shield and the Sword, the notion of the spy that could win the Cold War. And then as we look into that, we see a young Vladimir Putin having uh, the audacity to walk into a KGB headquarters, uh, headquarters, an office of the KGB, yeah. and it's just essentially volunteer. I want to be a spy. Um, I, you know, I want to be, uh, I want to take on this, this heroic role. And it's one of a self-fulfilling prophecy that he could do his part for Russia. The KGB, by the way, very politely told him, this is not how this works. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you don't contact us, right? And uh, Masha Gessen's book on the man without a face that's on Vladimir Putin uh, notes that his father might have likely had ties to the KGB, but so on. Vladimir Putin goes to school and he has great opportunities in doing so in the sense that he is ultimately not a very good student initially, but, but is ultimately, as he is studying law, is contacted and brought into the KGB. And then if we look at Vladimir Putin's career thereafter, it's not one of the heroic spy. Um, he so badly wants to be the individual who will be on the front lines against NATO. He's in Dresden and East Germany, and uh, he is a bureaucrat. He's one of so many KGB agents filling out forms that no one's ever going to read. Uh, but he has this vision of himself as the evidence suggests what we know about him, who is on the front lines against NATO, um, even as he is that bureaucrat. It's also at the end of uh, East Germany as the wall is coming down that a classic semi-apocryphal story about Vladimir Putin plays out. And that is as a crowd of Germans are surrounding the KGB office where he is stationed. He will ultimately be cabling Moscow, cabling Moscow, what to do, what to do, what to do. Silence. No word from Moscow. And the story is that Vladimir Putin goes out and confronts the crowd himself behind the gate, essentially says, if you cross this line, if you try to storm this building, this is not East German. This is not an East German building. This is Russian. Yeah. Uh, this is Soviet. We have men stationed and we will open fire on you. It's apocryphal in the sense that some people will say that he threatened the crowd with a pistol. He, he staved off hundreds at once, but he very calmly went out. And in this moment, you see a, a Vladimir Putin who is now playing this larger role for Russia. The story of Vladimir Putin thereafter is an extraordinary one, how he comes to the presidency. He's deputy mayor of St. Peter's finds a mentor and a person named Kolchak, and he kind of comes from nowhere. But the story of Vladimir Putin's life as it intersects with today is that somewhere along the way, Vladimir Putin is empowered as an individual to do his part for uh, the Soviet Union and then Russia and the belief that he could realize something larger. And that today, I believe, is the effort to recreate a Russian empire. There's not only about the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he calls one of the greatest geopolitical catastrophes of the 20th century, but about a larger story of Russian history in which he is now at the forefront. And Vladimir Putin, I believe, wrapped up in this um, ideological vision of history, will do his part. He will make the tough decisions. He now has become the villain without realizing it. Right, right. It's a story about us. It's not a story about Vladimir Putin. It's not just a story about Hitler, Stalin, or Mao. 
It's a story about our own children, yeah. a story about how we want to go off and make this world a better place. That doesn't always reach the heights of tyranny, right? But it is a story about how we can become susceptible to ideological radicalism and fanaticism that can lead people to do some really horrible things, believing that they're right, and yet they don't see it. And that's why, Professor and buzzkillers out there, we need to remain constantly vigilant. And we want to stress to the buzzkillers, one of the ways in which to, to be vigilant is to go get Professor Gaucher's book. And to go read things like Ron Rosenbaum's book on explaining Hitler and, and, and the other things that, that Professor Gaucher has explained to us to, uh, to today. So it just remains, Professor, for me to thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, I, I, I'd love to throw out that to all the buzzkillers out there, you're welcome to go to beforeevil.com. Oh, yeah, that's right. And, yeah. Uh, you can... You can pre-order the book. So if you go uh, by if, if you go to beforeevil.com and you order the book from the publisher, you can get a signed copy. But also for a limited time, I'm writing uh, different quotes and different messages in the books. And so if you order a copy of the book from beforeevil.com and go to the publisher's website, uh, you can receive a personalized copy. You know, Professor Buzzkill, if you don't mind, I would like to add uh, one more thing on to this conversation. Okay. Now, we talked about Hegel. We talked about the notion of the only thing we learn from history uh, is that we don't learn from history. Sure. Well, I think the lesson, quote unquote, that we derive from the youths of these awful men is this notion of recognizing that we ourselves can become the monsters we deplore. Look, we're all trying to make hard decisions sometimes in, in pursuit of what we believe is right. We're, we're grappling with infinite complexities and personal challenges. But the core message here is that we can guard against this reality of devolving into ideolo ideological radicalism by embracing empathy, reject yes. the tuneful dogmatism of sirens who pull us towards disaster by ignoring or denying the humanity of others, including the heinous. Yeah. Uh, we have to distinguish ourselves by interpreting the meaning of human experience with compassion. Like we need courageous opposition uh, to confront tyranny, but I think we also need love and mercy. And if this is a story about us, the onus of love and mercy is on us. Well, thank you very much for that, Professor. Professor Buzzkill, pleasure was all mine. And Buzzkillers out there, we will talk to you next week. Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.